Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Children for Children's Church, um, if you would choose to do that. So Ashley is there at the center doors. The rest of you can open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 25. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, there's a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you or behind you. you should be able to find a paperback Bible <clears throat> passages on page 11 of the paperback Bibles. <clears throat> Genesis 25. Um, it's good? Okay, there we go. Thank you. Um, I want you to uh, imagine it's, uh, I don't know, five years in the future, and um, you run into somebody, and they happen to know that you're going to this church. They say to you, you, you go to New Life Presbyterian, right? And you say, yeah. And they say, didn't your pastor do a sermon series on Abraham a few years ago? And you say, well, actually, yes, he did. And then they say, what did you learn? What are you going to say? What did you learn? Uh, it's a good thing to think about here today because we are actually completing this sermon series on the life of Abraham. It's our last sermon in the series. And so I'd like you to reflect on that a little bit. What have I learned uh, through this series? If you were to say this, I would consider it a win. If you were to say merely something very simple like this, what we learned is that Abraham was a great man of faith. That would be a good answer to that question. A sermon series on Abraham should reflect the fact that Abraham is what we might say the chief example of living by faith and not by sight in the Scriptures. That, that's in the simplest form. That's what the story of Abraham is about. I mean, there's a whole lot more, and maybe you gathered other things from the sermon series, much more to Abraham's life, but that's a big one, the fact that Abraham is a man of faith. And that's going to be relevant for us today because, as uh, has already been said, we're going to be installing officers today into the office of ruling elder. And so it's a good time to reflect on what it is to lead by faith, to lead by faith. Uh, Abraham, not just a man of faith, but Abraham, a great leader. Uh, he is regarded as a patriarch among three of the world's greatest religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, certainly a man who is known as a great leader. And um, so his life gives not only all of us as Christians instruction, example, help to know how to live by faith, but also gives examples to those who would assume positions of leadership in the church. So, here's what we're going to do. <clears throat> we're going to read these first 11 verses of chapter 25. Uh, this is kind of a con the, the conclusion <clears throat> to Abraham's life, kind of an epilogue to Abraham's life. And uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time in these verses because these are just kind of tying things up. I'll, I'll just cover this briefly. And then we're going to take the majority of this sermon just to review the main points of Abraham's life, particularly as he has given to us as a man of faith. So, if you're able to stand, please do so. Genesis 25, 1 through 11. <clears throat> 1 through 11. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Maiden, Midian, 
Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Holy Spirit, come please and open our eyes and our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> All right, so uh, <clears throat> these 11 verses, um, yeah, not, not a, a whole lot going on here, so let me just take a moment to just finish out the biblical text here on the life of Abraham. We, we first learn here that Abraham has taken another wife. Her name is Keturah. So you'll remember that Abraham's wife Sarah has passed away in chapter, end of chapter 23. And so Keturah now is his new wife. Now there's some debate about whether this is a wife that Abraham took after Sarah's death or whether this is kind of a flashback in a sense to a wife that Abraham took before Sarah's death. Actually, that's probably more likely because we all know how hard it was for Abraham to have a child as old as he was with Sarah. <clears throat> Sarah, at 100 years old, this would be 30 or 40 years later, seems very unlikely that he'd be having more children through Keturah. And in any case, they would be even more miracle children, wouldn't they, later in his life? So um, this is probably flashing back to a time before Sarah's death. Abraham took a wife. Yes, that means he had two wives. Yes. Um, this is the case for a lot of um, godly men, actually, in the Old Testament, that they were polygamous. Scripture does not recommend that, does not promote that, does not teach that. Scripture teaches marriage between one man and one woman, uh, but nonetheless, it did happen that some had more than one wife. Uh, we don't, again, con um, endorse that, but it's what the Bible presents to us as what was true for some men, including Abraham. So, through Keturah, there is a born a number of sons, and so they're all here listed. Uh, but what we notice here is that there's a strong emphasis on Isaac. Verse 5, all that Abraham had, he gave to Isaac. Verse 6, he gives to um, his concubines uh, gifts, but then he sends um, away all of his uh, family except for his son Isaac, and kind of keeps Isaac close by. You see at the very end, verse 11, uh, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac. And so the central focus here in terms of all of Abraham's sons is, is on Isaac. And we know why, because Isaac is the promised child. The redemptive line is going to go through Isaac, not through any of these other sons, not through any of the sons of Keturah. The redemptive line continues through Isaac. And then we see that Abraham dies, verse 7, lives to 175 years old. 
And we see in verse 8, he is gathered to his people. And we think what that means is that he was simply gathered up to go and be with his ancestors who died in the Lord before him. So this is a reference to the afterlife, Abraham dying, going to heaven to be with those loved ones who died in the Lord before him. So an emphasis on the afterlife here. We see also then that he is buried in verse 9. You might recognize that place where he's buried, Machpelah. We talked about that in chapter 23. The whole chapter was about Abraham negotiating to buy this cave so that he could find a plot to bury his wife Sarah in Machpelah. And so now we see Abraham also buried in this same place. And uh, later on we'll find that Leah and Rachel and Jacob are all born in this cave in the promised land. Again, as a way of saying that this is where Abraham and his people belong, in the promised land. This is their home because of God's promises that they will take the land. I didn't read verses 12 through 18 because actually we've already covered that. Back in October I did a sermon focusing on Ishmael. So we gave special attention to Ishmael. I jumped ahead and and looked at uh, that passage then, so we're not going to look at it now. So that gets us caught up. That's the epilogue, the conclusion to Abraham's life. So just like when you see, you know, celebrities that that die, you know, typically when somebody dies, you see a little retrospective of their life, right? And you're reminded of all of their main achievements. That's what we're going to do now. The main examples that we see throughout Abraham's life of him being a man of faith. Three things. The first is this. Righteous by faith. Righteous by faith. Here's the first thing and perhaps the most important thing that we learn in Abraham's life. That is that Abraham was indeed a man who was saved. He, He was a man who gathered to his people. He went to heaven Uh, He was a man who belonged to to God. He was justified before God. He had right standing before God. God loved him and accepted him. And the reason why is because he was justified in a particular way. So let's, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but let me just say this. This is the first requirement for anyone who would be a leader in God's church, right? That the person be saved. That the person be a Christian that the person be justified before God. First requirement. I don't care how smart or talented or gifted a person is, if that person's not a Christian, that person shouldn't be leading God's church. Now Abraham here is justified, but the question before us is, is how is he justified? How is it that he is righteous? Is he righteous because he was this godly man of faith? Is he righteous before God's eyes because he was this moral faithful guy? Is that why he's righteous? Is that the basis of his standing before God? Well, if we go back to chapter 15, back to chapter 15, God has made this promise to Abraham. Abraham, you're going to have all of these descendants, as many as the stars in the sky. And Abraham had to hear that, being an old man with a wife who was barren. And it seemed like an impossible thing. And yet chapter 15, verse 6 says this, After hearing that promise from God, and Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham heard it, and he believed, and as a result of his belief, it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was regarded as righteous, not because of behavior, but because of belief. 
And this becomes one of the most significant texts in all of the Old Testament because it is the foundation for the very important doctrine of justification by faith alone. That the only way to be right before God, the only way to know that you are justified before Him is not because of your behavior, it's because of your belief. And so here in Abraham's case, he, he believes He simply puts his faith in what God has promised, and then God responds by counting it, giving it to him, crediting crediting it to him, imputing it to him as righteousness. Now, the reason why I know this is such a big deal in the Bible is because it is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Three different times the writers pick up this verse and expound upon it, so I want to show you these three things here quickly. First of all, here's Romans 4, 1 through 5. Here's Paul writing it. He says this, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, by works or by behavior, but not before God. He can boast before other people, but he can't boast before God. For what does the scripture say? He quotes 15:6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Abraham is justified before God, not by works, but by faith. And the illustration that Paul is using here by allusion is that of a a bank account. Think of your bank account. There are a couple of basic ways you can get money into your bank account. One, is that you can get a paycheck. That is a wage. That's why he uses the word wage. What is a wage? A wage is counted to someone as his due. That is, he has a right to that wage because he worked for it. So when you work, for a good employer anyway, you get a paycheck. And the paycheck is a wage in response to your work. What Paul is saying here is that's not how anybody is justified. You're not justified by your work. You're not justified by what you give to your employer or what you offer up to God in your own self-man, woman-made righteousness. No one's justified that way. Instead, there's another way that you can get money into your account, and that is given as a gift. Just somebody just credits it to your account. You just look at your statement once, and here's this money in your account. It's not your paycheck. You didn't work for it, but somebody put it in there for free as a gift. That's what Paul is saying. That's the way justification happens, but there is one kind of um, way or uh, kind of a, 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 a kind of a means by which that happens, and it is the faith that somebody puts in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So, of course, Abraham didn't know the name Jesus, but this is, again, the foundation for this New Testament doctrine of justification by faith alone. Very important. As Reformed Christians, this is what we believe. This is central to the gospel. Paul picks up on this and expands upon it in Romans 4. But Paul's not done. He jumps to Galatians 3, and he picks up on this 15-6 verse again. So Romans 4 shows how Abraham was justified through his faith. Galatians 3 shows how you and I are justified. So he says this, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, 15-6, 
Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now this should strike you as very interesting, because notice what he says. He says that the promises that were given to Abraham about the nations being blessed in him are referred to as the gospel. The gospel was preached to Abraham. You know, very often we think of the gospel as just a New Testament thing since Jesus has come. No, Paul says the gospel was proclaimed to Abraham. In seed form, yeah. In a primitive kind of way, yeah. There's a lot more to be learned about the gospel, but in its most minimalist form, it was preached to Abraham. Abraham believed it, and he was justified. But what Paul says here is that this is foreseeing how God would justify the Gentiles. That's you and me. We're justified in the same way. You see, the people in the Old Testament weren't saved by their works any more than us, but because Abraham was saved by his belief, that means you and I are saved through faith as well. That's how you're saved, friends. It's not by saying, I'm going to be better, I'm going to do good, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to get active, I'm going to give, I'm going to do all these things, and then God's going to love me. That's not the way anybody is justified. It's through faith and faith alone. So, that raises the question, oh, good, that means I can do whatever I want. My justification has nothing to do with what I do. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to be nice to people. I can do whatever I want, right? It doesn't matter how I live. Is that right? Well, there's another passage in the New Testament that talks about this doctrine that refers to Genesis 15, 6. This is now James, not Paul. But James says, was not Abraham our father justified by wor- what? Works. Wait a minute. That kind of blows up everything we've been saying. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Genesis 15, 6, again, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What James is doing here is just responding to the question I just raised. People read the Bible, they see what Paul says, justification by faith alone, it's not by my works, amen, that's great, but there's always that danger that someone's going to conclude from that and say, oh, it doesn't matter how I live. And in God's wisdom and by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, he moves James to write this and say, it does matter what you do because your works complete your faith. Your works authenticate your faith. Your works validate the faith that you say that you have. And what James is saying is when Abraham offered up his son Isaac, that's what he was doing, proving that his faith was real, that he wasn't a phony. George MacDonald says it like this, a man or a woman's real belief is that which he lives by. What a man believes is the thing he does, not the thing he thinks. So you might think you believe certain things, but the way you know if you really believe what you think you believe is whether what you do flows from that belief. And if the way you live your life doesn't flow from what you believe, you don't believe what you say you believe. And so that's what James is saying. So three times here we have this reference to righteousness by faith, through faith alone, righteous by faith. The first thing 
that we learn here from Abraham's life. So how does this apply to the Christian leader? Well, again, the Christian leader, the man who assumes the role of elder or deacon, and in this case this morning, elder, uh, needs to be one who understands this. That I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved through faith alone and what Jesus has done. It's a, it's a righteousness that comes from the outside. And it's a righteousness that's been accomplished by another, Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection. That's our only hope. So what that leads to for a leader is this. It makes a leader humble. Because you can imagine a leader thinking, thinking about how we do it here at this church, wow, I got nominated to be an elder. Whole congregation elected me to be an elder. I must be a pretty good guy. <laughs> I must be really special. I must be God's gift to the church. You know, you could see how that could possibly well up as pride in a person. But this doctrine reminds anybody, any Christian, but leaders in particular, that the only reason you're saved is because something someone else did for you. You're not saved because of your righteousness. You're not as special as you think you are. <laughs> your salvation is based on what someone else did for you, not on the basis of what you have done for God. So that humbles, humbles the leader. But it also gives a confidence to the leader because the leader now knows that the justification that he needs and most longs for, that is the justification that comes from God, is already secured. Therefore, I don't need the justification that might come from people. I don't need it. I mean, I want to care for people. I want to love people. I'm sensitive to people, but I don't need their approval. That's important for a leader to be somebody who is not ensnared by the approval of men and women. Ironically, what that does is it frees the leader to obey God rather than men in his leadership, which in the end is what is best for the people. The best way to care for people is to be fully submitted to God. So, righteousness by faith, absolutely central in Abraham's life, absolutely central to anyone leading the church. Second thing, Living by faith. Living by faith. So, righteous by faith, that's how you become a Christian. You know, you receive a righteousness accomplished for you. you. You receive it, you don't achieve it. That's becoming a Christian. Now we get to living by faith, which is how to live as a Christian. Or sanctification, we might say. Point one about justification. The second point about sanctification. The, the process of walking with God through life day after day. Well, we're going to spend some time in Hebrews chapter 11 now. Hebrews 11 is sometimes called the Hall of Faith because in Hebrews 11 we have a list of all of these different people spoken to us in the Old Testament who lived by faith. And we see great names like David and Noah and Jacob. And yet with all of these other individuals, there is one verse given to their lives of faith. One verse in Hebrews 11 for everybody else, but when it comes to Abraham, 12 verses. <laughs> That's why I'm saying he's a great man of faith. 12 verses in the hall of faith about Abraham and the way he walked with the Lord, the way he exercised his faith in daily life. He was not merely a man saved by faith. He was a man who lived by faith. And that's essential for any <clears throat> Christian leader. Not to just talk the talk, but walk the walk. That's what we're, that's what we're saying. So, what is faith? Well, very start of the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11 says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
That's faith. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Walking by faith, not by sight. Faith, friends, is not irrationality, okay? It's not walking without regard to what is logically apparent. It's trusting one who is trustworthy. It's a conviction of things not seen based on the trustworthiness of the one who has been trusted. For instance, let's say you take your car into the garage, uh, your car's broken down, you need it to be repaired, and you stand there at the register and you tell them everything that needs to be done, and then the guy hands out his hand and he says, okay, give me the keys. Now you gotta get out your keys and put your keys in the hand of somebody that perhaps you've never met. That's an act of faith, friends. You don't really know what that guy's going to do with your car, right? But it's an act of faith. Why do you do that? Why are you willing to do that? Probably it's because you know the mechanic. You've been to this place before. You know the mechanic is trustworthy. And so this is not irrational to just turn your key over to some stranger, which it would be if you're walking down the street and someone said, give me your car keys, and you handed them over. That would be irrational. That would be a foolish kind of faith. But you know the mechanic, you know his character, so you turn over the keys as an act of faith. And that's what it is to live in this life, constantly entrusting to a trustworthy one, that is the Lord, your entire life, and the way you live, every moment of your life. So, three things that we see about how Abraham um, lives by faith, which gives us a lesson in leadership. First thing is this, the leader goes where God leads. The leader goes where God leads. We see this in Hebrews 11.8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. This is a reference, of course, to the very beginning of the story of Abraham in chapter 12. God called to him and called him out of his hometown to go into the promised land, and Abraham had no idea where he was going at the time, but because he was a man of faith, he said, Lord, here I am, send me. And he was willing to go and follow where the Lord led. Had no idea where he was going, but he trusted the one who made the promise. He trusted the one who offered up the call. And that's what a Christian leader does, friends. A Christian leader responds when God calls and says, Lord, here I am, send me. Ready to go wherever the Lord leads. And that could be in a number of different places. I mean, in the case of the elders we're going to install today, they sensed a call from God to serve as elder of this church. Where is that going to lead? What's going to happen in 2022? We don't know. I mean, we were blown away by what happened in 2020 and 2021. Lots of stuff happened and we didn't know what was going to happen. And we don't know what's going to happen in 22, so there's an act of faith. It's like, okay, Lord, you're calling me to this. I'm going to go, and I'm going to trust you. It can happen in a lot of ways. For missionaries, think of that. You know, sensing a call to go to another nation, pick up, leave all of your family and friends behind, and go to another place and settle down and preach the gospel. You know, leaders sense that sometimes. Not everybody, but leaders sense that, and and they go. Maybe a person is sensed to go to a call to go to seminary. So they get up and they go. Maybe a group of elders in a church sense a call to plant a church. Well, we, we go and we follow where the Lord leads. That, that's important for a leader. Sensitive to where God is calling, willingness to go, even though it might be hard. Second thing we see, <clears throat> a leader trusts what God says. 
A leader trusts what God says. This is the whole story of Abraham, right? God keeps coming to Abraham and saying, you're going to have a child, Abraham, you're going to have a child. And then years and years go by and nothing happens. (laughs) And Abraham gets older and older and his wife gets more barren and more barren. And yet there's Abraham clinging to the promises 25 years walking through life, trusting in the promises of God in what seemed to be absolutely impossible. Now, of course, Abraham wavered often in his faith. His faith was not perfect, and so qualifications to be a leader in the church is not that your faith is perfect. It's not that you don't have your doubts. It's not that you don't have your setbacks. It's not that there isn't cases of backsliding. That all is true of Abraham. But for the leader, there's just a, there's a, there's a resident kind of root trust in what God says, a belief that nothing is too hard for God, and so I will follow him wherever he leads. And that's what happened with Abraham. And then lastly, we see that the leader offers up what God requires. I didn't read Hebrews, did I? Hebrews 11 From one man, Abraham, and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So Abraham trusted what God promised, and what God promised came true for him in the birth of Isaac, as he trusted what God says. So the the third thing here, the the Lord, the leader, excuse me, offers up what God requires. The leader offers up what God requires. Requires, And we see this also in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. So here we have one of the most difficult, challenging aspects of the story of Abraham, where God comes to Abraham and says, Now this son who has been born to you, I want you to take that son and offer him up on the altar, to give him up. And we saw in chapter 22, amazingly, and probably the greatest display of faith in all the Bible, aside from the willingness of our Savior Jesus to go to the cross, the willingness of Abraham to offer up his son, to give up the ultimate sacrifice, to part with the thing most precious to him out of obedience to his God. That's huge. And that's what Abraham proved himself willing to do. Tim Keller says this, Abraham's agonizing walk into the mountains to offer up Isaac was the final stage of a long journey in which God was turning him from an average man into one of the greatest figures in history. God was at work in that situation, shaping, preparing Abraham. Of course, we know the story. God didn't actually require Abraham to give up his son, but remember what God said to Abraham. He said, now I know that you love me. And then later we realize, he said, now that I know that you love me because you did not withhold my son, your son. But later we hear the gospel and we can say, now we know, God, you love us because you did not withhold your son. (laughs) So we have this beautiful picture of the gospel and Abraham was used to show this. But what this tells us about a leader is that a leader is is willing to, to sometimes part with things that are precious to him for the sake of the church, for sake of service to, to God's people. God requires different things of different people. Um, But very often, a good leader is one who has had to give up something. Very often, a good leader is one who has suffered loss. Very often, a good leader is one who has endured 
pain. And that was certainly the case for Abraham. So this is what it is to live by faith, responding to God's call, going where he leads, being in his word, trusting what he promises, even when it seems impossible, and being prepared to offer up things that might be precious to us in service to our God. And that leads us to the third thing, hoping by faith. Hoping by faith. Abraham, the Christian leader, is righteous by faith. Justification, salvation. He lives by faith. Sanctification, daily walk. And he hopes by faith. That is, he has a radical future orientation. Looking ahead, not with fear and dread and cynicism and pessimism, but with hope based on the promises made by God. And these promises have come to Abraham primarily through covenant. God makes a covenant, enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham, offers up promises for the future, and we find these mostly in Genesis 15 and 17. And so there are two main promises that God gives to Abraham through covenant. First one is this. He promises offspring. Chapters 15 and 17, again, are where the covenant is described. We're going to be looking at verse, uh, chapter 17 a little bit here. The promise of offspring. Here's Genesis 17. God speaks to Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Here's the covenant promise. Descendants are coming from you. Abraham, offspring is coming from you. Now, what does that mean? Who is that? Who is this offspring? Well, very often when we read the Old Testament, we've got to take kind of an immediate fulfillment and then a long-term distant fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment of this promise is in the nation of Israel. And so Abraham, through Sarah and through his descendants, the people get more and more, and throughout the Old Testament, we read this story of the nation of Israel. That's the immediate fulfillment of this promise of offspring. But there's a distant, long-term fulfillment that is explained to us in Galatians 3, where Paul says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So it's not just members of the nation of Israel, it's every single Christian in the world today and throughout history is numbered among the offspring of Abraham. That's the full, long-term, distant fulfillment of this covenantal promise of descendants. Now, as we think about the future, particularly as leaders, and we consider what's going to happen in the future and whether the church is going to grow or going to die, I think it's worth asking the question, should we expect that there's going to be a lot of Christians or just a few Christians? Now, there are different passages that kind of make this kind of actually a confusing answer, but let me just say in the basis of Abraham's life, what God says to Abraham in the covenant is that your descendants, Abraham, are going to be more than the dust of the earth. Now, how much dust is there in the earth? <laughs> there is a lot, right? Is that a safe assumption? A lot of dust. He also says that your descendants are going to be like the stars of heaven. How many stars are there? Millions of stars. There's a lot of stars. Our call to worship this morning gave us a picture of heaven. What did it say? Gathered around the throne of Jesus is a multitude that no one could number. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. 
Friends, we don't want to presume on what God is going to do. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. History goes up and down in terms of the growth of the church, but I think an Ab- a leader leading in the example of Abraham looks ahead with confident hope that people are going to be saved, that the gospel is going to bear fruit, that people are going to be born again as the Holy Spirit is poured out. Leaders should not look ahead thinking, oh, no, no, everything's going to be awful. A leader should not be characterized by cynicism and pessimism, particularly about the gospel. The scriptures promise a multitude of people. So we go out, we share our faith, we do all that we can. We send missionaries out, we plant churches because we believe that Jesus is going to win. And he's going to get all the people that he was sent to die for. And the glory of God is going to cover the earth as the water covers the sea. So there's a positive, hopeful expectation. There's one other thing here. There's the promise of land. Covenant promise of descendants or offspring, and then there's a covenant promise of land also in chapter 17. God says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. So what is this land? Again, same thing. There's like an immediate fulfillment of that, which is the land of Canaan, which becomes the nation of Israel. That's the immediate fulfillment of the land promise. But there's a long-term, distant fulfillment as well. And it's a promise to God's people that is much greater than just that little parcel of land in the Middle East that we call Israel. It's called the whole earth. The new heavens and the new earth. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? The meek will inherit the earth. And here we see in Revelation 21, the vision given to John, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. This is the Christian hope. The person who walks by faith always knows that no matter how bad things look in the world right now, that this is our future. A world that is made right. A world where the curse is reversed. A world where everything broken will be fixed. A world where justice will reign. A world where everything sad comes untrue. The Christian leader is hopeful about that and excited about that. Now, that's not happening until Jesus comes again, but that's our chief hope. We don't put our hope in governments. We don't put our hope in science. We don't put our hope in social activism, although the Christian leader might be involved in every one of those things for good purposes. But our ultimate hope is not that any of those things will achieve what we all long for, which is a world made right. That comes through Jesus when he comes again to bring history to a close. And so as leaders, that's our hope. Our hope is in Jesus and his coming again. So that's what we learned from Abraham. Three quick things in review. We learned from Abraham how to be saved, not trusting in your righteousness, trusting in a righteousness that comes from outside of you, a righteousness that Jesus Christ alone accomplished, a righteousness that is received, not achieved. That's how you're saved We also learn how to live as a Christian, by faith, not by sight, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. We don't know where we're going, but we trust the one who's leading. And we also look to the future, not with fear and anxiety, 
not with cynicism and pessimism, but with gospel hope, knowing that a multitude will one day worship Jesus. These are things that are true of all of us as Christians, whether you're a leader or an elder or a deacon or not. But these are things that are especially true of leaders. And so, let's go forward and bring these men up. But first of all, we are going to sing a song and get ready to bring Joe and John forward. So, why don't we do that? Uh, Band, you can come forward and the rest of you